Hello, great minds! It's Friday, and after two weeks away, I am very happy to say it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History, as we get ready to discuss a topic most near and dear to my heart, and something I have foolishly avoided for far too long. But whatever could it be? Did you even read the fucking title? <laughs> So hello great minds and welcome to DGMH. I certainly enjoyed my two weeks off, my family visit was quite fun, and I managed to keep drinking just about the entire time. Plus, school's out for summer, thank god. What a terrible fucking year. Plenty of memories were made, but it was just miserably exhausting. But that's why I have this podcast. I get to study history, which I love. I get to learn, which I also love. And it's a reason to drink, which clearly I love to do. But alas, the day has come where I must rip out of the shadows that most marginalized of subjects in this show. That majestic beast that has lingered in the background of dozens of DGMH conversations. Yes, I figured I would wrap up this little bonus vacation month with one of my most favorite subjects. That's right, it's finally time to cover that furry little thing that I have been ignoring for far too long. Of course, I am talking about a creature that has captured men's interest for centuries, caused far too many conflicts, and is way cuter than anyone gives credit. The Majestic Beaver. To toast this North American critter that is the most beloved of DGMH creatures, sorry Carlos II, you and your Habsburgy chin are a close second. I had to have a glass of Canadian whiskey. Because whether you're French or Indian, British or Dutch, Canada was the oh-so-great hunting ground where we lost an unfathomable, mm, an, unfathom an unfathomable fraction of furry friends just to feed the French fashion frenzy. Alliterative, I know, and you have no idea how fucking long that took to write and say. Now it is not really a leap to say that the beaver was in fact one of the most consistently significant factors in causing early modern wars in the Americas. But what was it about a beaver that made them so lucrative, so desirable, and so worth fighting or dying for? I guess you'll have to listen to find out, but first, it's some history for you, a reason to drink for me, it's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. Quote, it is our hope that they might in the future, more than ever before, engage in hunting beavers. These are the words of French explorer, colonizer, soldier, governor, sometimes called the father of New France, Samuel de Champlain. The idea captured in these words is his hope to establish a successful and lucrative foothold in the North American fur trade. And here we are clearly talking about beaver fur. Beaver fever, however, was not a phenomenon of the 17th century alone, and in fact had some epically historic roots. Author and environmentalist Eric J. Dolan, who I have to thank for my personal beaver fever, notes, quote, The roots of the fur trade go back to prehistoric times, when humans relied on furs to protect them from the elements. He continues, quote, During medieval times, an astonishingly wide array of skins entered the stream of commerce and were traded from north to south, east to west. Furs flowed from Germany, Ireland, and Scotland to London, from Spain, North Africa, and Sicily to Paris, from Sweden, Portugal, and Bulgaria to Bruges. Russia to the east also emerged as a major entrepot sending skins to the west. So basically, beaver was everywhere, and everybody wanted it. 
By the 14th century, furs had become an increasingly important symbol of class distinction. King Edward III of England had limited the wearing of furs to the royal family alone, and James I of Scotland had decreed that the best furs could only be worn by men that had at the very least obtained the rank of knight. Believe it or not, the fur trade actually had roots in the fishing trade. As European fishermen off the Canadian coast began spending more and more time on land, the various Indian tribes in the area began trading beaver pelts for European goods. But this raises several new questions. What made beavers, as Dolan notes, the quote, almost perfect commodity? How did the beaver trade work, and why didn't Sammy the Beaver Slayer just go out and hunt the beavers for himself? So these questions are actually quite simple to answer. One, the beaver trade was basically like any other trade. A good was harvested from its most raw state, it was made into something that could be preserved, regulated, and affordably transported back to Europe, where it was then manufactured into a finished product for popular consumption. Unlike other goods, like sugar, indigo, coffee, tobacco, or silver, this cash cow was literally from an animal, and a wild one at that. One couldn't just farm the land or force others to mine precious beavers or import a labor force against their will to obtain furs. No, to get that beaver, to get fur, one was going to need a certain knowledge of the land and hunting techniques that led to the successful acquisition of furs. Europeans did this pretty well in Europe, too well actually, as the northern European beaver population was nearly wiped out by European greed. Plus, it seems like most Europeans didn't know their ass from a hole in the ground when it came to finding and hunting beavers in the Americas. Besides, doing so would have pissed off just about every tribe in the greater Great Lakes region. Beyond this, North American tribes weren't keen on waste, and this was a fairly universal tradition across North America that was apparent well into the 19th century and even still today. Turning to the writings of Father Paul Lejeune, a Jesuit priest who lived in 17th century New France, he writes, quote, The savages do not throw to the dogs the bones of female beavers. It is best to throw the bones in the river. He continues, As I was laughing at them and telling them that beavers do not know what is done with their bones, they answer me, Thou does not know how to take beavers, and thou wishest to talk about it? The tradition of discarding beaver bones into the river as opposed to giving them to the dogs was to respect the beaver. Quote, if the bones are given to the dogs, the other beavers would be apprised of it and therefore would make themselves hard to capture. To just enter into an area and disrespect the traditional ways of living and hunting would have been detrimental to the French fur trade and likely the French themselves. Luckily for France, Champlain knew this. So here's how it works. Dolan notes, quote, The Indians did all the work collecting them. They could be bought with relatively inexpensive European wares. They were easy to transport and commanded high prices back home. And it is that simple. But who won out in this trade? To explore this, we will examine the French fur trade. Turning again to Father Jeune, he recalls an Indian saying, quote, The beaver does everything perfectly well. It makes kettles, hatches, swords, knives, bread, and in short, it makes everything. He continues, the English and the French have no sense. They give us 20 knives for one beaver pelt. But trust me, the Europeans got exactly what they wanted out of the deal. And here, I do not mean just furs, but instead monopolies over the entire trade in furs with specific tribes. The French were able to master this through what I guess we could call friendship, but in reality, it was ruthless pragmatism. Turning back to Champlain, he was famous for flattery. 
In the earliest years of the fur trade around Quebec, Champlain would often take a hit in the first year of trade just to secure lasting friendship with the local Algonquin and Huron tribes. The next year, the Indian hunters would return with even more fur in return for European objects and more. From a European perspective, this friendship would be more actually called a monopoly. You see, what the various tribes were aware of was the profitability of fur and that Europeans wanted them. What they were unaware of is that a monopoly on the fur trade meant huge profits for merchants back in Europe. While it likely seemed to the Native Americans like they were coming out of the deal on top, the long-term mercantilist goals of the French would win out in the end. Well, at least in their end. So to sum it all up, fur made Europeans money. But did the various fur trading tribes that actually did all the work get anything out of it? Well, actually, yes. The simplest answer is that like slave traders in Africa, Indians got European guns and advanced weapons in return for what they had to offer Europeans. In this case, however, it was beavers. But when one digs a little deeper, it is much more complicated than that. What Indians, especially in the case of the Huron, wanted was an ally against their rivals, the Iroquois, who were a far larger and far more powerful confederacy. And that is exactly what Champlain gave them, an allegiance that worked. In short, French wanted furs, but couldn't get them themselves. Thus, a trade network developed, and that meant big profits. However, these big profits aren't just going to be ignored by other European players. But enough about all this trade stuff, let's see how it played out in the big picture. Okay, we're actually going to take a quick pivot here because it turns out that beavers weren't, I guess I should say aren't, just valuable for their luxurious pelts. Since the days of ancient Rome, poems have captured a rather strange myth that beavers actually self-castrate when cornered by those hunting them. This myth is actually a result of the important role of beaver testicles, yep, you heard me right, beaver testicles played in the Roman luxury trade, and even medicine. I'd like to say that I didn't spend an odd amount of time researching beaver testicles, but I totally did. And I'm sure that most of you are wondering why this part of the beaver was so desired. It's really quite simple. There's a specific secretion gland in beavers that produces a, quote, powerful musk, Romans thought that this scent was derived from the testicle, but in reality it came from their anal glands. But whatever could this scent be, and for what could it possibly be used? Get ready, the answer is vanilla. So vanilla extract, pretty basic cooking ingredient. Cookies, yep. Cake, absolutely. And obviously it's easy to just sit here and think that the scent and taste is derived from plants. Most of the time it is. I mean, that's what vanilla is, but another key ingredient in producing this musk or scent is castorium. Quote, castorium is a substance that is produced by a beaver's castor sac, which is found between the pelvis and the base of the tail. Beavers use this brown sticky substance to mark their territory, and their diets of mainly bark and leaves generate a rather familiar scent, one similar to vanilla. Let me be totally clear, according to several articles, including one from National Geographic's, castorium is listed by the FDA as a quote, food additive. Beavers can actually be quote, milked for the fluid. Studies have revealed that it is used in dozens of perfumes, but as for food, well, it is now far more uncommon. Today, very few companies use castorium in production of vanilla flavorings, but even if they were, they wouldn't be required by law to list it as an ingredient. It would be labeled just as, quote, natural flavoring. And natural, it certainly fucking was. I think I could talk about beavers all night, but one of the real points of this episode was to talk about the devastating impact of the beaver as it lured many European nations into many, many wars. Two beavers are better than one. 
a great line from a fantastically inappropriate How I Met Your Mother song skit, and probably exactly the reaction most Europeans had upon encountering swaths of beavers across the Great White North. And God were they willing to fight for them. The first of the Great Beaver Wars is often called the Beaver Wars, you know, because historians are ass at naming things. This one is actually tied directly to two great minds covered on the show, Kings Louis XIV and Charles II. Quick version, the Iroquois are hunting beavers for the Dutch, who have recently settled in the New York area, as even old New York was once New Amsterdam, and they are running out of beaver and fast, so they turn to neighboring territories to get that land and that beaver. Of course, this comes at the cost of the tribes that have already lived and hunted on that land for some time, like France's Algonquin and Huron allies from Sammy the Beaver Slayer's day. But unlike another classic song says, they didn't just change the name because, quote, people just liked it better that way. No, as all DGMH fans know, the name was changed by Charlie II when he seized the colony from the Dutch and bequeathed it to his brother's proprietorship, that is, James the Duke of York. So what started as a war between local tribes to feed European desire for fur turned into a fairly significant but so quickly forgotten Euro-American conflict, first between the French and the Dutch, then between the French and the English, all playing a mostly supporting role. The wars would go on for the greater part of a century, why yes, I did say a fucking century. It wasn't until some French regulars or troupe de marine showed up in New France that the war finally started to creep towards its final curtain. From 1609, a year after Sammy founded Quebec, to 1701, with the signing of the Great Peace of Montreal, European demand for beavers drove 92 plus years of conflict over land, resources, and I just can't say it enough, beavers. The end result of these wars was La Grande Pie or the Great Peace of 1701. Signed in Montreal, it was basically an Iroquois victory, but it certainly wasn't a European defeat. The French would emerge as the dominant player in the fur trade, with the English playing second fiddle, and the Iroquois got to dominate the entire Great Lakes region and beyond. The Iroquois would continue to be a power player in North American politics, and serve as a sort of buffer between the French and the British for the next hundred plus years, and the Huron would slowly die from European diseases. But this all sets up the next round of, quote, beaver wars, which would heat up in, yes, you guessed it, 1701. Some of you may remember way back in the Louis saga when we discussed his many wars and how the last two of those wars were against his greatest rival, Dutch Willie III of England. Well, they were also wars with American theaters, and part of the broader French and Indian wars. Now these four French and Indian wars were all about, oh you guessed it again, beavers. Of course it isn't that simple, anybody who says a war is caused by one thing is just being foolish. But at the heart of these conflicts was always Anglo-French competition over the fur trade, and who in the end would dominate it. Jumping back to great mind number two, yes, George Washington. It was he who marched into the Ohio River Valley in hopes of securing Virginia's access to the fur trade that caused the nine year long seven years war. Hell, even my graduate alma mater, Duquesne University, gets its name from one of the very forts that the French built along the Ohio River in an attempt to secure again the fur trade. <laughs> Beavers. Per the terms of the Treaty of Paris of 1763, which ended the Fourth French and Indian War, what Americans actually call the French and Indian War, the British seized control of all French lands in North America east of the Mississippi River, with Spain getting everything to the west. Why, you ask? There's no way that I have time to get into that. I've already fallen down enough vanilla-scented beaver holes for one episode. 
1763, the British had ended competition over the fur trade once and for all, and finally secured absolute access to that oh-so-precious beaver they so long desired. So by my count, beavers have caused five specific European conflicts that spanned across nearly 200 years of French and British colonization. I have just scratched the surface of the fur trade and these complicated, often global wars, but I did the best I could. If I fell short, well, as they say, this sort of thing happens to all podcast hosts. And yes, that was a penis joke. Figured I'd throw one of those in for good measure. It took four more wars and another 70 plus years to determine that the French would get the hell out of North America and the fur trade, and the British would go on to dominate the trade without issue. Like hell, here comes America. In the end, all this beaver was too hard for Britain to handle, and as a result, beavers had a unique role in the American Revolutionary War. Specifically with the passage of the Quebec Act, an act passed almost simultaneously with the Coercive Acts, which was an act that to this humble podcaster has always been about beavers. And I'm sure some of you are starting to think that I just blame them for everything. But it's true, the very land that American colonists had fought and died for was now denied to the colonists with the Royal Proclamation of 1763. And come 1774, with the passage of the Quebec Act, that land was not only denied to American colonists, but given to Canadians, many of whom were still French and Catholic. To an American colonist, this is the ultimate slap in the face. Even before the days of revolution, mercantilist policies regulating the fur trade dominated colonial America. And none is sillier than the Hat Act of 1732. The Hat Act was created to protect London. Mm, London. The Hat Act was created to protect London hat merchants who had pleaded with Parliament to do so. And of course, these hats were made of fur. Thomas Jefferson himself denounced the act that, in his words, said, quote, "An American subject is forbidden to make a hat for himself of the fur which he has taken, perhaps, on his own soil." In his summary view of government, he referred to it as, quote, an instance of despotism to which no parallel can be produced in the most arbitrary ages of British history. Fur was, of course, not at the root of the revolution, but our furry friend was certainly somewhere in the margins of Washington, Hamilton, and Jefferson's epic and revolutionary stories. Well, I'd say it's finally time to bring this fanboy's furry-filled fraternization to an alliterative end. Historian Robert Millward posed the question, could a beaver start a war? He says, absolutely, and I couldn't agree more. He continues, quote, the beaver was responsible for generating a healthy economy in England, France, Canada, and the American colonies. We know that both the French and the English valued the fur trade. Fur hats and coats defined one's social status. Rich men wore a beaver hat. Rich women likewise wore beaver-trimmed coats, beaver collars, and beaver muffs. And I love this idea. I always teach it just that way when covering colonial America and the revolutionary period. I tell my students every year, quote, and yes, I'm quoting myself here, beavers are the cause for just about every North American war we are going to discuss. Maybe not always the primary reason, but a reason nonetheless. I guess I should wrap this up by saying the War of 1812 was yet another war that was ever so slightly caused by competition over the fur trade but anyone would argue that this was about much bigger issues and resentments. Still, with all of this, the actual tally is somewhere around seven wars and more than 200 years of fighting between a handful of European powers and dozens of Indian tribes. But so far, we have neglected one piece of this story. The truest loser in all of this chaos, the beaver itself. 
And it is this humble podcaster's opinion that no one, no historian, no author has captured the true reality of the beaver trade better nor more beautifully than artist Kent Monkman. Now, it's pretty hard to talk about art on a podcast with no images, but for today, we will discuss just two of his masterpieces on colonial America. Quote, The Scent of the Beaver, and quote, The Massacre of the Innocents, both of which I will be sure to share to the DGMH Facebook and Instagram pages. The first one is a beautiful play on The Swing, a Rococo masterpiece by artist Jean-Honoré Fragonard. In Monkman's work, his alter ego, Mischief Eagle Testicle, a play on the words mischief and egotistical, swings over two gentlemen. The real beauty of this is that the two men longing for the woman dressed in fur, one in a blue French uniform, the other in a British red coat, are actually General James Wolfe and General Louis-Joseph de Montcalm, the two generals that died at the famous Battle of the Plains of Abraham, better known as the Battle of Quebec. Journalist Georgia Phillips Amos describes the installation quite perfectly, saying, quote, In Monkman's life-size diorama, Scent of a Beaver, the Cree artist, gender-bending alter ego, Miss Chief Eagle Testicle, appears on a swing in a beaver-trimmed gown. Invoking Fragonard, she sits with her hair piled rococo high as the British colonial general James Wolfe and French Marquis de Montcalm pant in the flowers below. This piece is, in my opinion, perfectly sarcastic and tragically accurate. Anglo-French pining for the beaver was at the heart of far too many wars and conflict. When coupled with European egos and political resentments, it spelled catastrophe. The second one I want to discuss is a painting certainly worth noting, as it depicts the truest loser in all of this conflict, chaos, and war, the beaver. In his 2015 painting, Massacre of the Idiot, <laughs> Massacre of the Innocents, Monkman this time plays on the Peter Paul Rubens piece of the same name. However, the innocent pink flesh depicted in Rubens' painting is replaced now by fur, or what is sometimes called soft gold, as innocent beavers are slaughtered ruthlessly by white settlers in very violent ways. Again, Amos's commentary beautifully captures Monkman's work, saying, quote, With irreverent humor, Monkman appropriates European aesthetic traditions to upend the hubris and horrors of colonization. Irreverent. What a beautiful descriptor for Monkman's work, and dare I say, my own. Maybe that is why I appreciate and find the beauty in his work, work that so many criticize and often find offensive. Well, that's it. The Beaver special is complete and we barely dove into the rich content of all the aforementioned wars. But I did what I could, and I will do nothing more, except drink and make our triumphant return to the scale of greatness. I'm not rating beavers here, but if I was, they would get sixes all around. But let's just stick with the drink. Today I grabbed a shot of Crown Royal Vanilla, and by now I'm sure you figured out why. Crown Royal says that this whiskey is finished with a, quote, creamy vanilla taste, and now I can't help but wonder if the natural flavors that make it so delicious are actually brown beaver askunk. Kinda ruins the taste, but not completely. Actually, I am not a huge fan of flavored whiskeys, but this isn't too sweet, so I'm gonna give it four points for taste, especially because of its, quote, vicious and warming hints of creme brulee. In terms of price, this stuff comes in around $21 a bottle, which is pretty standard and not that expensive, but I'm not sure that a flavored whiskey is worth all that. Plus, it costs more than regular Crown, which for some reason pisses me off. But this 70-proof beaver ass flavored whiskey will knock you on your ass if you let it. Four points for price. 
but sadly I will not be returning. Save peanut butter and banana, flavored whiskeys just aren't my thing. Honestly, I enjoy my whiskey when it tastes like, you know, whiskey. Call me old-fashioned, I don't care. Two points for an unlikely return. But still, Crown Royal Vanilla leaves the show with a modest 10 out of 18 points and three crowns. I like Crown, I'm just not a huge fan of the flavored stuff. I hope you will consider supporting this podcast and all of its irreverent mischief by leaving the show a great, hopefully five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It helps, no one really understands how the fuck it helps, but it really supposedly does. If you're all caught up and looking for even more DGMH, then head over to the DGMH Patreon page. Just follow the link in my show notes to get access to even more great content and help keep this show going. Listeners, be sure to join in the conversation on the DGMH Facebook group, where you can get a dose of DGMH daily. And be sure to follow the show on Instagram to find out how much I really do drink. And as always, thanks for listening. So let's raise a glass to beavers. I've been hinting at doing this episode for some time now, and finally DGMH got some beaver. To dive any deeper into the wars would have made for a saga in itself and a commitment that I just wasn't ready to make. But DGMH will return in July with a round of social drinking, followed by our next great mind, Thurgood Marshall. So salute to beavers. You were hunted to near extinction solely because of the greed of others. Others that probably came to enjoy, smell, or eat flavoring made from a brown gunk that secreted from somewhere around your asshole. That's just fucking karmically hilarious. Cheers.